4. What I want you to see from this passage of Scripture primarily is the fact that our God is ascending God. I think that there is a sense in which uh, whenever we see uh, Isaiah in the presence of God, we take a look and we try to identify with Isaiah in the, in the sense of his, uh, of, his, uh, of his being completely undone in the presence of God's great holiness. What we see is that God is moving on, again, not allowing, in a sense, Isaiah to stay there. He has a task for Isaiah, and he commissions Isaiah, and he prepares Isaiah for that task. And the way that he does it is by cleansing. But I think it's very significant to see that the thing that really motivates Isaiah in this passage of Scripture is the sense of the glory of God. Now this is significant because whenever we speak about God as ascending God, oftentimes we make the case, and rightly so, that there is a great need in the world today for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Were not our hearts grieved when we read the news yesterday? Two mass shootings in our nation? Do not our hearts, are not our hearts weighed down with the, with the, uh, with, with the surge of sin that we see all around us? Is it not a, a, a thing of grief when we consider how that sin is being embraced more and more in the land in which we live? And when we see the repercussions of sin falling out all around us, it grieves our heart. And there's a great case that could be made for the fact that humanity needs your message concerning Jesus Christ. But I want you to see something here. What causes Isaiah to go out, as it were, wasn't the need of humanity. It was included in that. And I'm going to bring out here shortly that, that God brings the bear in the whole uh, opening of this uh, uh, book of Isaiah. God brings the bear the reality of human sin. And the, great, and the great grief that it causes in the lives of individuals. But what sends Isaiah out is, a, is, a, is that vision, is that glimpse of the glory of God. And I want you to know, and I want you to understand, that all true service for Christ springs first and foremost from a vision of God's glory. What motivates you for the service of Christ? Is it the good of your fellow neighbor? Fair enough, but not enough. What motivates you, for the, uh, uh, again, to, to do this service for Christ? Is it, again, the, the need that you see that all, all around you? Again, fair enough, but not enough. It must be the glory of God that sends us out. It must be a sight of His glory. That's what happened here for Isaiah. And I want to set before you again this passage of Scripture, as I said before, Isaiah's vision, Isaiah's confession, Isaiah's commission. Well, as I said before, when it's all said and done, the point that I want to emphasize from this passage of Scripture is the fact that our God is ascending God. Well, let's take a look at what we see here. The first thing I want you to see here is uh, verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah chapter 6. Again, although we've already read them, let's look again. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. In the, king that, in, in, I'm sorry, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. The first thing that we have here is Isaiah is setting forth by way of something of a time mark, the time in which he ministered. Isaiah was a very significant prophet. In one sense, uh, he might, we might say he was the chief of the writing prophets. Uh, during the time in which Isaiah lived, Isaiah lived uh, during a time span of at least three of the kings of Judah. Uh, there was uh, King Uzziah, who was a, who was a good king. Uh, if you've been with us in our Sunday evening services, uh, we, we've preached from Uzziah and we spoke about the fact that he was generally a good king. There were some issues that he had, but generally he was a good king. But we saw after that uh, in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, and we're not going to read about it, but in Isaiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, we'll read of this king, King Ahaz. He was something of a disaster. He was a horrible king. And then after that, we're going to see King Hezekiah. This man was wonderful. This man was again a good and godly man. And so again, Isaiah, he ministers for a very long time in the, in the nation of Judah. But he's marking his prophecy here by way of the death of Uzziah. 
And I think it's very interesting that we see something of a contrast in the year that King Uzziah died and the vision of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, I'm sorry, the, the vision of uh, Isaiah. Isaiah said he saw the king high and lifted up. You see, Isaiah's vision, again, comprehended God in his majesty, comprehended God in his rule over all things. And so here is Isaiah, again, coming to this time, this vision. I saw, again, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what I want you to see is something of the description that, that Isaiah gives of, uh, of this majestic view of God. Now, as I said before, and I, and I hope that I can convey this in a way to, to, to make you not only hear what I'm saying, but to feel, to feel what's being said here, to feel what's on this page of Scripture. This is an exalted passage of Scripture. This is a passage of Scripture that finds few parallels in all of the Word of God. It finds few parallels in all the Word of God because, as I've said already, it's exalted view of God. It finds few parallels in all the Word of God because when all is said and done, we're going to have to see how the Gospel writer John brings this passage of Scripture and focuses it on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John, the Gospel writer, says this, Isaiah saw, his, Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture that has, that has for us all the necessary elements of that glorious doctrine of the Trinity. What we have here, as I said before, it's a glimpse in the heaven itself. And what I want you to see, again, is not only this description of God, which we're going to go through, but I want you to see the effect that it has on Isaiah. But first, back to the description that we have of God here. Notice again, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his, and his train filled the temple. Well, this speaks of God's majesty. This speaks of the fact that God is a great king over all the earth. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. Again, these, these angels, the, uh, this, 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 this angelic uh, uh, retinue that is around uh, the, the, the throne of God, uh, these seraphs, it's literally the burning ones. And it's, they represent something about the, about the nature of God's awesome holiness, his burning holiness. And this is what we see by way of these angels, these seraphs. Uh, the, the fact that they have six wings. Uh, some have commented along the following lines. They had six wings. Two of those wings, they showed reverence and they covered their eyes. Uh, two, of those, two of those wings, they showed humility with, by covering their feet. Two of those wings, they showed their readiness for service. By, by with those two wings, they flew. And what we see here again is this, this picture, this exalted vision uh, that the prophet Isaiah has. And again, here we see everything by way of majesty, everything by way of holiness. And again, what is the echo that we hear from heaven? It's the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is, as I said before, the vision that Isaiah has. Well, again, we see, uh, God's, uh, we see God's majesty here. We see God's holiness, but we see God's power as well. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Something about God's almighty power here. Well, this passage of scripture. Well, what has brought Isaiah to this place where this kind of vision is given to him? I have to admit, one of the questions that I've not thoroughly been able to answer in my study of this passage of scripture is, how was it and why is it that this man Isaiah gets this vision? We don't read of Isaiah entering into an extended time of fasting. We don't read of Isaiah doing something. Or, we, we, you know, again, why? Why this vision? 
How did Isaiah get this vision? How is it that this vision came to Isaiah? And I'm sad to say that I, I can't specifically tell you why, other than to say, because it was needed in the day. And there is a sense in which when there is a need in the day by way of the condition of humanity and by way of the condition of a sinful people, God still makes himself known. And that's a great encouragement to us. He makes himself known to us, you know, through the word of God. But anything, anyway, I want you to see something about Isaiah's day. Isaiah's day was a day, again, of sinfulness. Oh, here, here, go, here I go again, right? Talking about sin over and over again. Can't get away from sin. I'm sorry, but if I'm going to preach the word of God, these things have to be said. And so when you take a look at Isaiah in the day in which he lived, we see that it was a day that, again, was, a, was affected greatly by sin. There was, there was religious sin that was rampant in the land. Now, there was personal sin that was rampant in the land. There were social sins that were rampant in the land. And we see this all in the beginning of the book. Notice if you just turn back a few pages to, to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Here, again, the charge that God has against his people. Again, we can, we can begin all the way back in, the, in, in verse 1. Isaiah, again, is the recipient of a vision there. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, at Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. And again, God's voice to the people, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. You understand that God speaks not just to a tribe or not just to a nation. He speaks to the, to, to the whole earth. He goes on to say again, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his, his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not consider. God's lament, O oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers. You see again the great, the deep sin that they were guilty of. And I want you to see again that this was primarily by way of a religious sin. Look in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Now again, understand God is not speaking to the actual inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah here. He is speaking to the people of his beloved Judah because they've sinned so grievously. And this sin, again, has all the elements of both personal uh, sexual sin, but also religion, uh, national religious sin as well. There is, there is a, we can say it this way, spiritual adultery that's taking place in the land. Verse 11, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Saith the Lord, I am full of burnt offerings and of rams and of the fat of uh, fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks, nor of lambs, nor of he goats. And again, what's he saying? I've had enough of your, I've had enough of your religion. I've had it up to here with it, he says. And so again, we see religious sins in the nation. As I said before, we see, we see again, we, we see, we see personal sins. Uh, look again at uh, chapter 3 now, verse 9. And again, here is the Lord pleading with his people. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9. Again, we can start back in verse 8. For Jerusalem is ruined. Judah has fallen because their tongue and, the, and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance does witness against them. They declare their sin as Sodom and they hide it not. Woe to their soul, for they have rewarded evil to themselves. Say ye to the righteous, it shall be well with them. For they shall eat the fruit of, the do of their doings. Woe unto the wicked. It shall be ill with him. For the reward of his hands shall be given unto him. So there were, there were religious sins. And there were personal sins. There were social sins as well. If you come back and if you look uh, uh, back in, uh, in chapter 1. 
And again, let me just, uh, uh, forgive me, uh, let me just see if, if, if I can uh, find this here quickly. When you see here in, uh, in, uh, in, in verse, uh, in chapter 1, what we have here is God is now declaring uh, the sins of society, of the, of the powerful against the weak. And again, God takes note of that. God does not overlook that as some small thing. God always, again, in these prophets, takes issue with those who would use their power to, to, to take advantage of those who are weak. God doesn't, God doesn't turn a blind eye to these things. There are not certain sins that God will allow and, and, and other sins that God will punish. No, sin at every level had corrupted society. And so what we see here, again, is, the, uh, is, the, is now the need for the vision. In the passage of Scripture I was talking about is, um, is in verse 17 of chapter 1. Learn and do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. You see, again, God takes issue with these sins. And again, which of these sins are we not as a nation guilty of? And what I'm saying to you is, again, the, the same need that existed in the day of Isaiah is a need that exists for us today. And that's why I'm trying to make this case. I hope you have a great love in your heart for lost sinners. I hope you have a great love in your heart for humanity. I hope you have a great sense of, of national concern for, for this country. But I want you to see and I want you to know and I want you to understand that what you need before everything is a sight of the glory of God. It's the glory of God that will not only send you out, but will sustain you as you are sent out. And so this passage of Scripture, again, we see it here very, uh, very clearly, the need uh, for this vision. And so Isaiah, God gives to Isaiah uh, this vision and what we have here, as I said before, is this glorious vision, primarily of God's holiness, but also of God's sending. Well, the next thing I want you to see here is the fact of not only of Isaiah's vision, but I want you to see now Isaiah's confession. And this strikes us in a certain way, because we would all count Isaiah to be a holy, holy man of God. We would all count Isaiah to be a man who walked very closely with his God. We would all count Isaiah to be a man who's a, whose personal piety we would all love to emulate. But once Isaiah sees something about the glory and the holiness of God, what does he say about himself? You see, he sees himself in his true light. So notice what Isaiah says here as he goes on. Then said I, verse 5 of Isaiah 6, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And what is Isaiah doing here? Isaiah is confessing his sin. And it's really something to, to see the language of Isaiah here. Uh, some of your translations may say, I am ruined. Uh, the idea here is that Isaiah sees the, the very desperate situation he is in. Here he is now standing in front of a holy God. And it's a very interesting thing here that the thing that Isaiah experiences here isn't some kind of frivolous joy that he goes around talking about, oh, I saw God, I saw God, I saw God. No, really, he's, he's weighed down with something of reverent fear. He knows he's in, the presence of, of, uh, who, he's in the presence of one whose holiness is a consuming fire. And so Isaiah now is confessing his sin. And isn't it interesting that, uh, how he confesses his sin? He confesses his sin as a, as a sin that has to do with his speech and a sin that has to do with his lips. Why is this? Well, I can only offer maybe some suggestions here. <clears throat> Number one, I think we know and we understand that, the, that speech is an indicator of the heart. If you want to know what the heart's all about, listen to the words. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, For out of the mouth flows the abundance of the heart. Out of the abundance of the, I'm sorry, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. 
So again, it could be that Isaiah, what he was doing is he was saying essentially this, look, my lips are unclean and I'm confessing my heart is unclean. There is a wickedness that springs down that, that finds its root deep within my heart. And I would not that it were so, but it is. And I confess it before you as a holy God. But I wonder too if there's something that, that Isaiah is saying by way of the fact that he's a prophet. And maybe as a prophet, he would have thought, or maybe as a prophet, people would have said to him that maybe Isaiah, the best thing that there, there is about you is your speech. You bring us the word of God. You tell us about God. You say all these things about God. And maybe it was that Isaiah was seeing that which many would have looked at as the thing that he would have most quote-unquote pride in. Maybe he was confessing that which he himself maybe had pride in. He may not be able to do much, but he can speak for God, maybe he said. But when he saw God, what did he say? These lips are unclean. These, lip, these lips reveal a, 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 a deeper corruption. And so here is Isaiah now seeing himself in this situation. Well, I think this is consistent with seeing something of the glory of God and something of the majesty and holiness of God. The holiness of God is always that which causes us to examine ourselves and to see who and what we are and where we stand before this holy God. And what does Isaiah say? Isaiah says, I'm undone. I'm ruined. There's no hope for me. So we have Isaiah's vision. We have Isaiah's confession. Let me say this. Nothing bad ever came from a confession of sin. And nothing bad comes from this confession of sin. Here is Isaiah confessing his sin. And God will not leave him there. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? This man confesses his sins. And what happens? Listen, verse 6. Then flew. I love it. Then flew. The idea here is quickness. The idea here is immediacy. Not the idea that the angel took his time. No, a confession of sin was made. And God sent the holy angel quickly. You see, again, no bad ever came from a confession of sin. May we never be afraid to confess our sins. May we confess our sins freely, knowing that this same God is a God not only of holiness, but a God of pardoning mercy as well. And we see it here again in the sixth verse. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having the live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and so lo, and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, thine iniquity is purged, and I, I'm sorry, thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Here are the two words in the Old Testament for sin. Sin and iniquity. Again, iniquity, that inward twisting of the nature. Well, that's been taken away now by this cleansing work. Again, the, uh, the, the, the concept of sin, uh, uh, the idea of, 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 of disobedience, that, 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 tra- that disobedience has now been purged away. And so what we see here is we see that the very sin that is confessed is the very sin that is purged. I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters, please understand this. Go to God with your sins, you understand. God is willing to to be gracious to you. God is willing to pardon you. God is not holding this against you. God, again, to to use the image here of of Isaiah 6, he'll, He'll fly an angel your way. But He'll get there quicker than that even now because of the work of Jesus Christ and the ongoing work of the Spirit of God. Do you see what's happening here? God is setting before us again in all clarity this idea that He's ready to pardon Yes, Isaiah is a man of unclean lips. Yes, his lips reveal a depth of corruption in his heart. But when all is said and done, once confession is made, no bad thing ever comes from confession of sin. And so here again is Isaiah in the presence of God confessing his sin. 
Well, we go on here now to, from Isaiah's confession, now we see Isaiah's commission. And again, this is, the, this is the great verse that we've been looking at or that we've been setting up for. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Isn't this a wonderful thing? Also I heard the voice of the Lord. His lips are cleansed, and now he hears the voice of God. You see, he saw God, and this was amazing. This is what motivates him. But now he hears the voice of God. It's a wonderful thing to hear the voice of God speaking to you in the Scripture. It's a wonderful thing to have the voice of God being applied to your soul, impacting your soul, penetrating your soul. And this is what happens to Isaiah now. I heard the voice of the Lord. And what I want you to see, even before we get into any of this text, what I want you to see is this. Those whom God sends, he prepares. And he prepares by way of cleansing. He prepares by way of brokenness. He prepares by way of, by way of working out honesty of our souls before a holy God. Yes, I am that man of unclean lips. We say this. So I hope we say it. And so again, once this confession is made, God is quick. God is quick now again to speak. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom will I send and who will go for us? This is amazing. A number of things are amazing. There are theological issues here that we have to touch upon. Uh, there, are, there, 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 are, uh, uh, there are personal issues here that if I can say it that way, there, there are things uh, in, in this passage of Scripture that makes us interact with the text in such a way as to say, Am I coming up to what this text sets before me? And the first thing I want you to deal with that I want to bring to your attention is this, is that, as I said before, this passage is so great because there's, 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 a, fool, there's a theological fullness in this passage of Scripture. Yes, this passage of Scripture, I'm convinced, does have at its core everything that we need to begin to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. We see again, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. It's interesting that the word Lord here in this passage of Scripture is not, the name, is not the name of God Jehovah, it's the name Adonai. But we see again this name, this term Adonai can be applied again to the, to the awesome, to the true and holy God. And so when we see again this deliberation, who will go for us? Some would kind of dismiss this passage of Scripture as not revealing anything of the triune nature of God. I take exception to that for, for a number of reasons. Number one, again, what we see is that as the Scripture by way of the New Testament gives us information to help us fill in what may be lacking on the page right here. And that information is specifically this. As I said earlier, I'm not going to ask you to do it now, but you can do it. Maybe write this down. Go, go to, well, we will do it. Go to John chapter, 12, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And we can start, I believe it's in verse 38. John chapter 12, verse 38 and following, I believe it is. Let me see uh, John uh, chapter 12, and we'll start with verse 37. John chapter 12, verses 37 and following. And notice what we have here. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Well, again, this is, of course, this is a reference to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had come in the Father's name. And let me say this about the concept of God as the sending God. If you were to read through the Gospel of John, one of the primary self-identifiers for Jesus of Nazareth is the fact that he is sent to the Father. Over and over again, this, this self-awareness of being sent to the Father uh, comes to the fore in the Gospel of John. But here he is now, having done so many mighty miracles. Again, verse 38. Now notice this. They, end of verse 37. Yet they believed not on him. Verse 38. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spake, Lord, who has believed our report? 
and to whom the, and, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Now notice verse 41. If you have the NIV, it's much clearer. Notice in verse 41. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Who's the pronoun a reference to? The pronoun refers back to Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw in the magnificent and holy triune God a glimpse and a vision of Jesus Christ. You see, the passage of Scripture contains everything we need for the doctrine of the Trinity. Go to Acts chapter, 20, uh, Acts chapter 28. And let me say this. I, I hope many of you know where I'm going with all these passages because these, uh, these passages are foundational uh, to this vital doctrine in Scripture. Go to, again, Acts chapter 28. And look at the Apostle Paul having preached to his Jewish countrymen and his Jewish countrymen having refused the, the message of the gospel. And notice what we have here. Again, we can uh, uh, Acts chapter 28, we can start with verse 24. And some of them believed, with, and, and, and some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word. Now notice this. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people, and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and so forth. Who is doing the speaking according to Paul in this passage of Scripture? It's the Spirit of God. So you see in this passage of Scripture what's coming together. Everything that we need by way of the structure of the doctrine of the Trinity is implanted in this passage. And so as I said before, this passage of Scripture is a very, very important passage of Scripture because of its theological content. But it's more than that. This passage of scripture is vitally important because of its personal impact on the life of Isaiah. And I hope the personal impact on each and every one of us. I want you to see now and I want you to understand. Let's go back to, to Isaiah chapter 6. I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Do you notice again, Who shall I send? God is speaking in the fullness of his divine essence. Who shall go for us? I believe it's a true deliberation within the Trinity. But when this question is asked, we, we have to understand God is not at a loss here. Absolutely not. When these questions are, are presented to us in Scripture as God asking a question, it's not because God doesn't know. But God is speaking in a manner. God is revealing something. And what's significant about it is this. You look at the lives of various men and various prophets. There was Jeremiah, called from his mother's womb to be a prophet, set apart from his mother's womb. There was the Apostle Paul, the same thing, set apart from his mother's womb. It is interesting, however, that this glorious and our wonderful and our gracious and our and God Almighty poses a question before a man or poses a question before a woman and says this, Who shall go for me? Who shall go for us? And what God is doing in this passage of Scripture, He is, he is eliciting he is drawing out. He is calling forth inner desires to see God glorified in our life and in our place. And while he could say to Isaiah, Isaiah, you go, he asked the question, why? Because he wants to see Isaiah see for himself that there is a desire in his heart to take up the glory of God in his day. When God asks, who shall go for us? Every heart that loves God says what? Go find somebody else. That's not what they say. They say, here am I, send me. Do you see what God is doing? God is moving Isaiah along. God is graciously cleansing him. 
God is purging his iniquity. God is taking away his sin. God is allowing him to hear his voice. And God is asking him the question. God is challenging Isaiah now. And Isaiah hears the voice of God. And he says, here am I, send me. As I said before, this brings us back to the thrust of the passage of Scripture. Our God is ascending God. As I said before, he sent prophets, of the, uh, he sent prophets into the world uh, and, and to his people to warn them of their sin. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. We read it in our passages here today. But also, I want you to see and understand something. Our Lord Jesus Christ, having been sent into the world, accomplished fully the task that the Father gave him to do. I think it's in John chapter 17, where the Lord Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer, what does he say? He says, I have, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. There was a work that was accomplished. You've, you've, you've seen him, you've heard him on the cross, crying out with his last breath, it is finished. You've heard him say that. The work is accomplished. You've seen him in his resurrection glory, and you know by way of the resurrection, God the Father was putting a stamp of approval on all that Jesus did and said. And said. And you've also heard the words of the Lord Jesus Christ saying to his apostles, and subsequently we would say to the church. And he says this, as the Father hath sent me, the sending God, as the Father hath sent me, even so now I send you. You see, the sending God has sent his Son who becomes the sending Lord. And he sends out his church. And did you notice how Jesus says, he says this again, as I said before, as the Father hath sent me, how has the Father sent the Son? I think a passage of Scripture that we've looked at a number of times in our study in the Gospel of Mark is very important here. It's that passage of Scripture of uh, Luke chapter 4. And remember, the Lord Jesus Christ picks up the roll, the scroll. And there he is in the synagogue. And he picks up the, he picks up the scroll. You, you heard me talk about this before. Jesus was a Bible preacher. He took up the Bible and he preached from the Bible. He took up the scroll. What did he say? He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You've heard me say this before. I love it. Jesus preached himself from the Scripture. This is what all preachers ought to do, preach Jesus from the Scripture. And so Jesus picks up the scroll. He reads the passage of Scripture from Isaiah 61 there. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to, to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, and then again to, to give the deliverance to those who are in captivity. And I want you to see here that here we have Jesus himself being empowered by the Spirit. Well, if you go back to John chapter 20, chapter 20, verses 21 and 23, when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you, the passage after that says, and he breathed on them and said, receive you the Holy Spirit. How did the Father send the Son? He sent him empowered by the Spirit of God. What did the Father send the Son to do to, to, to accomplish and to complete the work of salvation? What has Christ called the church to do? To take this message of salvation to a lost and dying world. And so what we find here is our God is a sending God. My brothers and sisters, I ask you two questions this morning. Have you seen something of the vision of God's glory and holiness that would motivate you to say, here am I, send me? You see, this is the thrust of the passage of Scripture. I speak to young and old alike. You may say, I'm too young. But Samuel was a young boy, wasn't he? And God called him. You may say, I'm too busy. All those fishermen were pretty busy and God called them. You may say, I'm too old. Moses was getting up there and God called him. You see, no excuse. Circumstances and age, no excuse. God calls. Who will go? And I, and, I, and I don't want to be, I want to be careful as to how I make this transition here, but I, but I think I do need to make it. Again, brothers and sisters, you may say I'm limited. Well, there are people who will go for you. 
And I'm not saying that to excuse you from taking up your cause, your place in the, in the work of God. But there are people who will go for you. There are our sisters here that, that will go out on your behalf for the glory of God. Having, I hope, seen a true vision of the glory of God. I believe that they have. I hope that they have. And so again, I want you to see and I want you to understand that our God is ascending God. And therefore, as we bring this all to a close, I, I want to press upon you why it's important that you understand that God is ascending God. Because we live in a day where many would say, we are a God-forsaken land. Brothers and sisters, we may be facing the judgment of God, we may be under severe discipline, but we are not God-forsaken. The very fact that you are here, hearing the word of God, shows that God has not forsaken this land. So we are not a God-forsaken people, you understand. The second thing I want you to know and understand, you need to know that God is ascending God. And then when God sends, he sends with the intention to save. Why do you need to know that? Because we get a hard, a hard edge on us sometimes. Maybe not all of us, but I know some of us, we get a hard edge on us sometimes. And that hard edge is always denouncing sin, denouncing sin, denouncing sin. I'm, I'm prone to that, I know. But I need to understand the, uh, the, a passage of scripture like this that reminds me that God is ascending God and he is sending prophets and he is sending preachers and he is sending missionaries and he's sending you and I out into the world to do what? To tell this sin-sick world that he will pardon all those who repent and look at Jesus Christ in faith. The vision of God the grand motivation, the question of God, the great impulse, the answer is with you.